Hello and welcome to the Dank Christian Memes Podcast. Before I go any further, can everyone hear me okay? You're a little crackly, but for the most part. Okay, well, perhaps more importantly, can you hear our our guest, Dr. Levine? Are you with us, Dr. Levine? God, I hope so. This is such a new platform for me. Yes, I really appreciate your patience. Dr. Levine has not only been putting up with emails back and forth with uh, me for months, uh, but we've been having some technical struggles as we've gotten started here. Um, But in the event that I... Uh, you know, disappear into the void of the internet for the some reason. For some reason, Jacob is fully prepared to take my place. Is that correct, Jacob? Yep. Great. So, uh, Doctor Levine um, is uh, the Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. Thank you very much for being with us. I'm delighted to be with you. I wish you would just call me AJ. You know, I'm I'm feeling my age at this point because I'm the only person on this platform that apparently doesn't have a meme. Um, so if you, if you call me AJ, it will make me feel younger and and more with it, sort of maybe. Okay, well, we can certainly appreciate that, but we don't. We try not to do any gatekeeping here, uh, and you know, because you are new to Reddit, especially, we will do our best to give you a a good introduction uh, as we go. Um, you know, we're going to spend a lot of time doing a Q&A with Dr. Levine. Um, I have a number of questions. I, I want to give the folks on stage an opportunity to ask questions as well. Uh, but let's go through one at a time and just sort of say sort of where we're at in the world of faith and, and what we're up to currently. So I was born and raised in the United Church of Christ, uh, and I'm currently a moderator and the digital minister for Dank Christian Memes. Uh, and, and Jacob here is a moderator with me. Uh, Jacob, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit better? Uh, Yeah, I am a recently graduated master's student uh, of Near Eastern archaeology, and I am also a moderator here at Dank Christian Memes. And we're very, very thankful to have your your expertise on board. Um, uh, Next, I want to go to uh, Nuntribe. Can you give us a quick intro, Nuntribe? Yes, uh, my name is Nuntribe, at least on Reddit. Uh, <laughs> I am uh, hopefully a helpful helper here on our uh, uh, live podcast. Uh, and I am a uh, Christian that comes from a sort of Baptist tradition, uh, but also Protestant non-denominational, military non-denominational. We should talk about that one day, about going to churches on a military base but anywho that's kind of my background and uh currently do av work at my church in denver and and as our sort of local radio and av person how bad is my static and how much do i need to be working to fix that right now uh it sounds good on my side rockland i think you're good hopefully uh hopefully people are hearing you like i'm hearing you which is a-okay all right well thank you for that uh, next, I want to pop over to Andrew. Can you give us a quick intro, Andrew? And, and thanks for coming back. You you visited us uh, before. Yeah. So I'm Andrew. I come from a mixed Protestant and Catholic background, currently residing in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and I am a first-year Master's of Divinity student at Duke Divinity School. Um, and my role here is I'm just kind of a member of the Dank Christian Means community. 
Thank you for being here. Uh, and I think the, the only one we haven't gotten to yet is uh, Gimmicks. Thanks for coming back for us, Gimmicks. Thank you, Roy. I'm an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and have been a practicing pastor for the last nine years or so. Great. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Like I said, I have you know a number of questions uh, already prepared, uh, but I don't necessarily know where those questions are going to lead us. So f- feel free to ask some some follow ups as we go along here. Uh, are you ready to get started, Doctor Levine? Or Absolutely. AJ? I'll work on that. Yeah, work on that. <laughs> All right. So my first question is: uh, I just kind of like to know about your faith background, sort of a little bit about your faith journey. And how that led into your, you know, career as a New Testament professor and professor of Jewish studies. Yeah, well, I don't think I've had a faith journey, and I'm sorry if that's disappointing. Um, no, that's uh, fine. Yeah, well, um, I, so I'm Jewish. I've always been Jewish. I will probably always be Jewish. Uh, my my Jewish identity is not wrapped up in what people generally call faith. In other words, it's not theologically based. Um, it's not uh, trust in some sort of transcendent anything. Uh, it's more of an ethno-cultural identification. Um, I like going to synagogue. I always have because I like the liturgy and I like the community and I like the idea of prayer, although I'm not sure to the land anywhere. And I like the history and I like the ethics. Um, I got interested in Christianity uh, because when I was growing up in a predominantly Roman Catholic neighborhood, to my Catholic friends online here, um, I was fascinated by the traditions of my neighbors, whether it was saying rosary uh, before everybody went to bed at night. So if I had a sleepover party, I had my own set of beads. I still have them. Um, Or Christmas trees or Easter bunnies or saint parades through the streets and the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Um, And then a kid accused me of killing God. So I, 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 I couldn't quite fathom how this tradition that had all this really great stuff in it was, was also charging me with deicide. Um, I was seven years old, and she said to me, you killed our Lord. And I said, I didn't kill anybody, because if you did, you would know. And she said, yes, you did. Our priest said so. Um, so this, and now you get a sense of how old I am, because this is in the early 1960s. Uh, Vatican II had already started. Uh, but the one of the last documents of Vatican II from October 65, Nostra Aetate, uh, was the Roman Catholic proclamation that all Jews at all times could not be held responsible for the death of Jesus, except that hadn't been promulgated yet. So the priest said, you know, I killed God, according to this kid. So I knew that priests had to wear special collars. And I thought the reason priests had to wear these special collars was because were the priest to tell a lie, the collar would choke the priest. So I, a child, said, you know, was the priest dead? Because this had to be such a whopper of a lie. And she said, no. So, you know, the priest said, I'm responsible for the death of God. The caller doesn't kill the priest. So by the transitive property of deicide, I must be guilty of killing God. Um, and How old were you at this point? I was seven. I was in second Wow. That is, that is really heavy, especially for a seven-year-old. So I was I was confused and upset, um, and I got off the school bus. My mother met me at the school bus, you know, and she said, "Why are you crying?" <laughs> Sounds like John twenty women. Why are you crying? Um, and I said, "Because I killed God." And uh, it took my mother a while to figure out exactly what had happened, but when she did, uh, she assured me that that God wasn't dead, which you know, for my seven year old being was was very good news. Um, and as I found out later, she made a couple of calls to the local church. So my parents had told me. 
uh, that Christianity, which for me meant Catholicism, I, the first person I met who registered to me as a Protestant, I met when I went off to college, um, that Christianity was very much like Judaism, that we took authority from the same scriptures, whether it was Genesis or Isaiah, we prayed the same prayers, like the Psalms, we worshiped the same God, the one who created heaven and earth, um, and that a Jewish man named Jesus and a Jewish woman named Mary, um, who were popping up in like neighbors' backyards and little shrines and were all over the place because there were churches all over the place, um, that they were very important. So I, I had thought of Christianity as much like Judaism, which in fact it is. Um, but then I realized that there were certain differences that also needed to be accounted for. So I announced to my parents, you can probably tell I'm an only child. I announced to my parents that I was going to go to religious education class with my friends to catechism because we all went to public schools. So this would be after school. And I was going to learn where this hateful teaching came from and I was going to stop it. So I'm seven years old and I'm going to end anti-Semitism because I thought it was a translation problem. Because It's good to have like, ambitions. That's well, important. Good, right. That, after that is curing cancer and world peace. So, I, you know, I thought it was a translation problem because in Hebrew school in the next town, you learn Hebrew. Nobody told me the New Testament was written in Greek. But I had, I had great parents, fabulous parents, who said, in effect, as long as you remember who you are, go, you might learn something. It's good to know about other people's traditions. Um, and the catechism teachers, mostly women religious nuns, um, were delighted I was there because I'm the only kid who wants to be in religious education class after school for a couple of hours twice a week. And I fell in love with the stories. And I'm still in love with the stories. Uh, because when you read the Gospels, substantially the stories told about Jesus, and certainly the parables, the stories told by Jesus, are very much Jewish stories. So I got into this thing because I got accused of deicide, and I stayed in it uh, because I was just fascinated by the literature, um, which I realized eventually was Jewish literature. The New Testament is a very Jewish book. Um, and that interpretations of this text have, for 2,000 years, not been very helpful in terms of Jewish-Christian relations. And I thought I might, through the use of history and the use of hermeneutics, although I didn't have that language at the time, be able to do something about it. Well, that, that's, like I said, that's, that's very heavy, especially for, for a child of a, that age, but, but for anyone. Um, but it does lead into my next question, uh, if, we, if we feel you're ready for that. Um, it, you know, I want to ask about, first of all, the the Hebrew Bible, some call it the Hebrew Bible, some call it the Old Testament. Is one of those terms better than than the other? Well, I'm not happy with the term Hebrew Bible at all because I don't know what canonical order we're talking about. Um, Hebrew Bible is a good academic term. Um, so that I, I think it was Andrew who mentioned being at Duke Divinity School. Um, so I was there um, uh, in, in, the P, in the MA and PhD program um, where I was told use Hebrew Bible because uh, Old Testament is insulting to Jews. You know, I the Jew didn't think so, but, you know, what do I know? Um, so for a while I was on the Hebrew Bible bandwagon. And then the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. For example, um, the canon of the synagogue and the canon of the church, um, we share books like Isaiah or Genesis or the Psalms, but we read it in different canonical order in different translations um, with different reception histories. So Hebrew Bible is just a mushy term to suggest that we're all reading the same thing when in fact we're not. 
Um, it also doesn't help Jews very much because we already know our text is in Hebrew. We don't talk about the Greek Bible because then we don't know if we're talking about the, the Septuagint or not. So I think for Christians to use the term Old Testament for Christian Bible Part 1 is perfectly fine. And, the, and then we can noodle about whether we're going to include the deuterocanonical works or not, like the Maccabees or Judith. Um, as long as you remember that old is fabulous. So as I've already noted, I'm old. Old is terrific. Old gets me an increase in social security. Old is wonderful. Um, and if I were in the synagogue, I would want to talk about the Tanakh, the, the Torah, which is the Pentateuch, the Nebi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. And if we don't try to find some lowest common denominator vocabulary, which is what Hebrew Bible winds up doing, um, then we can recognize the distinctions that are in the two canons. Um, Hebrew Bible in the academy very often simply is just a code word for Old Testament for Christian Bible Part 1, except it sounds better. That, that sounds consistent with my experience. But regardless of the nomenclature we decide upon, to what extent have Christians essentially uh, uh, sort of uh, culturally appropriated the books of the Old Testament? Is, is, that, is that accurate or is that too harsh a criticism? Um, I, I think you can get at it in a different way to say that both Jews and Christians culturally appropriate this material uh, because none of us okay. are, are participants <laughs> in ancient Israel. Um, so the Jewish community will read this text through the lens of rabbinic literature and medieval responsa and so on. Uh, and the Christian community will read the same text through the lens of the New Testament and the church fathers and the reformers, or if you're Baptist, whatever you feel like doing. Um, it, so it's, it's basically open to everybody. Um, my concern is that, uh, or one of my concerns is that people reading through one set of lenses recognize that there are other sets of lenses that also provide uh, logical and often quite quite beautiful or ethically profound readings. Um, there's also yet another set, which is the historical lens, which is to try to figure out, you know, uh, when was Deuteronomy written and, and uh, uh, it, what was, what, when was this material codified and can we really talk about a King David and so on. So we've got Jewish readings uh, of various sorts, because God forbid Jews would agree. Um, we've got Christian readings of various sorts, because God forbid the Christian people in the Christian communion would actually be ecumenical across the board. Uh, and we've got historical readings. I like them all. Okay, so I have more questions, but I don't necessarily want to monopolize. Does anyone else from our, our panel of uh, co-hosts want to ask a question of Dr. Green? You know, and anybody no who's on yet. here, by the way, um, you can always email me afterwards. Um, although I retired from Vanderbilt, I have emeritus status, which means I keep my email. So if I say anything that strikes you as unhelpful or wrong or you want to argue, um, just send me an email if, if you want to continue this conversation. That's very kind of you. Go ahead, Nantra. Uh Definitely no questions. I just wanted to say I'm, this is exciting. I I think all of you guys are smart Bible people, and I'm kind of the layman here, which is fine. Uh, but my my friends often say, "Hey, when are you going to go to to a seminary or something like that?" And so I feel like I'm getting a little sneak peek, perhaps. So this is fun. This is very fun. Thank you very much, uh, Doctor Levine. I don't care what very you say. Call me a doctor. <laughs> yeah, you just call me AJ. It makes it easier. All right. So that's a work in progress for me. But my next question for AJ is: What are some common mistakes or misconceptions? conceptions Christians have about biblical Judaism, by which I mean the Judaism we see in the four Gospels with Jesus, and Jesus's connection to those Jewish communities. Oh, good heavens, how much time do we have? I know. Uh, well, and, 
It's a leading question because I, I've seen so many mistakes in our, our comments. So <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity to, to take a stab at which ones might be uh, uh, most uh, endemic, perhaps. Yeah. Um, a, a major one is the Christian misunderstanding of Torah, of biblical instruction, um, which comes into Greek as nomos law. Um, so we get in certain Christian circles the idea of Old Testament law and New Testament grace, um, which is related to Old Testament God of wrath versus New Testament God of love. Um, these are heresies. It's called Marcionism. Um, it's not as if God has a personality transplant somewhere around the second century BCE. Um, Jesus never complains about the God of ancient Israel, to the contrary. Um, when I get this nonsense from my students, which I do fairly frequently, I just proof text and I say, fine. The Lord is my shepherd who leads me beside still waters and restores my soul. But you aren't condemned to the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, which means the Old Testament God is a good shepherd and the New Testament God is a sadistic dentist. Um, so you got to get rid of this, this awful distinction. So stop thinking about Jews in terms of legalism, because the only time I ever heard it, hear the word legalism is about the Judaism of Jesus, period, or people who behave the way Christians think Jews behave then. Um, there's complete misunderstanding of the Pharisees, who are in fact the religious innovators of the time, um, who are concerned to make the tradition um, uh, more sanctified, since Exodus says that Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, um, a, a phrase, by the way, picked up uh, more or less by First Peter in the New Testament. Um, what the Pharisees are interested in doing is taking the sanctity that's involved with the temple and, and giving it out to the common people, because why should it just be for the priests? And that's where all this hand-washing stuff comes from. Um, oh, mistake. Uh, that first century Judaism made the Taliban look progressive and Jesus invented feminism in the pantsuit. Um, so that, that <laughs> that's a big one. Anytime Jesus starts talking to a woman, oh, look, he's talking to a woman, which was forbidden in Judaism, which is total nonsense. Um the idea that Jews thought if you were rich, you were pious, and if you were poor, you were sinful, when exactly the opposite is the case. Um, oh, gosh, what else? The idea that all Jews are looking for a militant Messiah, and they rejected Jesus because he talked about peace, which is nonsense. Um, the idea that Jews hated foreigners, hated Gentiles, and you kind of wonder how come they let them in the temple and the synagogues, but whatever. That Jews hated Gentiles, and Jesus invents the United Nations. I mean, all these these horrible stereotypes. Um, and then today we, f we find contemporary concerns uh, being uh, uh, shoved onto first century Judaism so that Jesus can come and rescue us from them. Um, and this is part of the problem of liberation theology, which I actually like very much because I like the idea of using the Bible to sort out political issues. But if you have to be liberated from something, then in much liberation theology or liberation-based um, social location readings, Judaism is the problem from which Jesus comes and liberates, which is in fact colonizing the text and yanking Jesus out of his own cultural context. That's just in brief. Well, and, and I, I know we can go on a lot, and I think that there's a lot of, what I've seen at least, is a lot of oversimplification um, and this idea that, you know, the Jesus was opposed to the Judaism of that time. But to what extent are the teachings of Jesus consistent? I know we have some story archetypes, but are is his manner of speaking actually that unique? Or is it sort of indicative of the rabbinical stylings of the time? I have to rephrase your question. Uh, because Feel free to do that as much as you like. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> 
academic. I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it, you know, not all Judaism is rabbinic Judaism. Uh, you, know, you have the Essenes um, and you have the people responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls who may or may not be Essenes. And you have the Sadducees and you have John the Baptist and his crew. And you've got Josephus and Philo and all those Jews living in the diaspora. And you've got, you know, village wisdom in lower Galilee. Um, so you can't funnel all of Second Temple Judaism into a rabbinic mode any more than you can funnel all of uh, uh, Pauline literature into an Alexandrine uh, allegorical Christian setting. Um, so we're all unique. The, the term unique simply gets overused. We're all unique. Um, if we weren't, then we'd be reading the same thing over and over again, which would be boring. Um, I, Jesus fits very well within a Second Temple Jewish context. Um, he also says on occasion things that are pretty outrageous. Well, you know what? So did the prophets of Israel, which is why we remember what they said. Um, like, take, eat, this is my body. That's pretty outrageous. Um, but the basic teachings um, make, make perfect sense within a Jewish context. Um, when it comes to Jesus and the law, Jesus and Torah, Jesus doesn't abolish Torah. He extends it, which is what a number of other Jews were doing at the time, including the Pharisees. Um, he makes it more rigorous rather than less. Jesus is not law light. Um, the law says don't commit murder. Jesus says don't be angry. That's harder. Um, the law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't think about it. That's harder. Um Jesus does not do away with the purity laws, exactly the opposite. He, he continually restores people to states of ritual purity uh, by cleansing a man from leprosy, by stopping a woman who's got either vaginal or uterine hemorrhages, by raising the dead because dead are very unclean. Um, he worships in his local synagogue. Uh, he uses biblical illusions that other people are going to get. Uh, he argues Torah on the basis of formulations that we find also in other branches of Judaism, like arguing from the lesser to the greater. You know, if, if you would pick your sheep up from a well on the Sabbath, how much more so would you pick up a person? Yeah. Um, so it, if he were completely off the wall, um, then nobody would have followed him and nobody would have bothered with him. So, yeah, he fits perfectly well within a very robust and very diverse first century Jewish environment. Um, where he lands, although so many Christians don't want to look at this, um, I, I think he lands in an apocalyptic eschatological mode. He thinks the kingdom of God is about to break in big time, and he's got a hand in preparing his people for that, that inbreaking of divine justice. Um, I think he's anti-family. Um, you know, unless you hate your mother and your father and your spouse, that's Luke, um, and your kids uh, and your house, you have no part of me. There does but, seem to be some familial conflict that, that doesn't really get talked about very much in Christian circles. Oh, God forbid we have focus on the family instead, in which it's, you know. Well, I think honor thy father and mother is a more preferable uh, <laughs> focus for a lot of uh, parents, especially. Right. And, and Jesus cites that one, too. Um, but I do think he, he is part of this afamilial model. We would call it in anthropological terms, fictive kinship units, which is what the people of the Dead Sea did and Philo's therapeutai did, these kind of Jewish shakers who live in Egypt, according to Philo, um, where loyalty is based on primarily on him rather than on one's village or one's kinship setting. That's common at the time also. That's what we do with things like monks and nuns or fraternities and sororities, for that matter. That's part of first century Judaism also. I think he was a celibate, um, which had a place in first century Judaism. But the thing is, as, as Judaism and Christianity, and remember all these first, Jesus and all his first followers, they're all Jews. Um, 
but as time goes by and more and more pagans, more and more Gentiles are, are joining this movement and, it, you know, Jews are becoming fewer and fewer, um, uh, you begin to see a split. And then like any split, like a divorce, you know, people get custody of certain things. So the church got custody of things like celibacy and continence and virginity. And the Jewish community said, fine, well, you can have that. We'll do the, you know, get married, make baby stuff. Um uh, they both kind of got rid of eschatology, <laughs> except it pops up every once in a while anyway. Um, but the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, us being contemporary society, particularly Christian society, um, it tends to drop out of this discourse. It's much easier to make Judaism look bad than it is to deal with the difficult words of Jesus. Yeah, so I think you sort of alluded to it, but I want to sort of highlight it. So were early Christians Jewish? We know the 12 disciples were Jewish. Um, Even if they didn't realize it, were these people following Jesus and and liking his teachings? Were they they low-key Jewish without maybe realizing it? I think if you were a Jew, you would know it. If you're a man, all you had to do was look down every time you peed and you would know. Um, (laughs) uh, My God, I hope that's clear. Um, The... um, eh, no, that works just fine in our community. Don't you worry. Um, yeah, I figured. Um, it, no, I mean, people knew who they were, um, but to be a follower of Jesus and to be a Jew in the first couple of centuries was not mutually exclusive. But by the time you get up to somebody like Jerome, you know, talking about this group of folks um, whom he calls the Nazareans, he says uh, they worship Jesus, so the Jews don't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, but they follow Torah, so the church doesn't want to have anything to do with them either. Um, they think these these two identities are perfectly harmonious, um, as would, for example, contemporary Messianic Jews who are uh, by descent Jewish would find those identities harmonious. Um, Paul is a Jew. He's clearly a Jew. And he's talking to Gentiles and he's saying to these Gentiles um, in Galatia or in Philippi or in Corinth, listen, um, the Messianic age has begun. He then has to explain what that means. Um, And because of because of the the faith of Jesus, which I think is a subjective genitive, um, uh, you are now part of this community. Um, uh, However, you do not convert to Judaism because if you did, then the only people who would be following God would be Jews. So one of the signs of, of the Messianic age, the eschatological age, is that the pagans turn away from their pagan gods and they worship the God of Israel. But they do so as Gentiles, which is the only way that God can be worshipped by many peoples, um, which is predicted in Isaiah and Zechariah, um, you know, Solomon's house of prayer for all nations. Well, if they're only all Jews, then you can't have all nations. So if you think about, you know, Judaism and Christianity as hard and fast distinctions at the with the New Testament, that simply doesn't work. Well, in, in our modern community, we, you know, like I, I opened asking about a faith journey because in our community, it's very common for folks to move between different different places. Uh, so, you know, I think considering that this this space where labels aren't as hard and fast shouldn't be all that all that baffling to us. Uh, before I move on with my uh, further questions. Does does anyone else want to hop in? I'm trying not to monopolize too much here. Yeah, um, I've got a question here real quick. Um, again, it's one of these kind of big picture questions. So, you know, we'll, we'll just we probably have to bullet point it more than, you know, give any super details. But um, one thing that is very prominent in Christianity right now is a huge focus on the New Testament without really paying much homage to the Old Testament. Um, so I'm curious in terms of your thoughts on reading the New Testament through an Old Testament lens, 
like what do we as Christians who are either pastors or going into a pastoral role, what do we need to know about communicating that to our communities? Yeah, I've seen this too. There's some pastor in Atlanta that basically said, dump the Old Testament um, back in the last century, two centuries ago. Um, Von Harnack, the very famous New Testament scholar from Germany, suggested the same thing. Um, I, I think it's kind of cutting off uh, Christianity from its origins, which is never a good thing. You don't cut off the roots because then everything else topples over. Um, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to miss every single illusion there is in the New Testament to the Old Testament. Just start with Matthew, and you get time after time. This was done to fulfill something, something. Plus, you get a bunch of illusions that you wouldn't know anyway, um, unless you knew the Old Testament. Um, so, it, it, since theologically, besides the fact that as an historian, that just annoys me. You know, let's forget about history and just do what we find to be useful. Um, as, as as somebody who's also interested in theology, this this strikes me as a very, very bad move. The Old Testament is the word of God. Um, when in Timothy, where it says all scripture is inspired, this graphe, this scripture that Timothy is talking about is the Old Testament, because there's no New Testament yet. Um, so it, since Jesus and Paul... And all the other people who got together to write the New Testament thought the Old Testament was scripture and everything should be based on it. It seems to me a disservice to the people who wrote the New Testament to drop the Old Testament out of the canon. Um, would it be relegated to a second class status? Um, yes, in the sense that it has to be interpreted through the new. That's Christianity. The New Testament tells you how to read the old. Um but similarly, in the Jewish community, um, although we still read the, old, the, the the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, in Hebrew in our worship services, the primary lenses through which we interpret it are rabbinic lenses. And, and that's actually how we understand all those, those different stories and commandments and so on. Um, I think it's a really bad move, um, and I think it's a betrayal of Jesus and Paul. So if the Christian wants to betray Jesus and Paul, yeah, what kind of Christian are you? That's the big question. Uh, Gimmicks, did you want to jump in with a question as well? I did. Thank you. Um, so one of the misconceptions that you highlighted really jumped out at me. It was the misconception that, um, or the stereotype even, that Second uh, Temple, first century Jews were generally expecting a violent Messiah, somebody that would um, do what David did and pick up a sword and throw out the Romans the way that he had thrown out the Philistines. Something in that context that I often hear referenced, but I never hear like the specifics of, the details of, is that in this first century, second temple period, there were other people trying to claim messiahship and doing through with many of the same symbols as Jesus did, riding into Jerusalem on the first day of the Passover on a donkey with palm leaves being waved. Is that does that hold up to historical rigor, or is that just something somebody said and repeated because it sounded good? Oh, it's sort of like you know Jesus leaving the napkin in the tomb, according to the Gospel of John, to say he'll be back. This is silly. Um, it, so you have other figures that could be looked at as they're sometimes called signs prophets, um, uh, who have this a similar eschatological edge. You know, like the reign of God is about to break in, and if you follow me, I will I will help you uh, understand it. John the Baptist would be a really good example here, um, who's preparing people for the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Uh, by getting them to, to to engage in an act of public repentance. But John's baptism is comparable to a modern altar call um, where you know the community says, oh, you did that? Okay, we're going to keep an eye on you now. Um, 
the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, lists a number of these different science prophets, uh, some of whom show up in the Book of Acts, like a fellow called the Egyptian, a fellow called Thutis. Uh, there was one in Samaria called, of course, the Samaritan prophet. Um, they're not, they tend not to be violent. Uh, they tend to be charismatic leaders uh, who can gain a following with promises that go unfulfilled. Um, uh, you can find in text some hints about messianic speculation. So there's a text that was written probably around the, the middle of the first century BCE, before Jesus, when Pompey, the Roman general, uh, comes into Jerusalem. And it's called the Psalms of Solomon. And it talks in Psalms of Solomon, chapter 17, about this warrior. Well, he looks like a warrior. He's on a horse. He's got a sword. Uh, but he conquers by the sword of his mouth. In other words, he conquers by appropriate proclamation. Um, you have in the second century uh, a fellow who gets called Bar Kokhba, son of the star. His real name is Simon Bar Kokhba. Um, and some people thought that he was the Messiah because he was militant and he actually originally was able to defeat some of the Roman troops. He, of course, loses and dies and everything goes to pot. Um, so you've got different messianic figures. Um, and that's how you can that's how Jesus fit into his context. Um, there's a wonderful scene in the movie Life of Brian, this 1970s Monty Python movie, uh, where Brian, who was clearly not the Messiah, um, is is tooling around some village. And a fellow comes up to him and says, you know, you're the Messiah. And Brian says, no, I'm not. Uh, and the fellow says, aha, it's one of the signs of the Messiah. He'll deny his identity. And then Brian says, OK, I am. It sounds like, you know, the Gospel of John. I am. And the fellow says, ah, he, he acknowledges it. And Brian says, well, look, how do you know? And the fellow says, because I followed enough of them. Jesus was the only one out there. Um, but they each had they each had a different um, catalog of things that they were known for, um, whether it was um, healing or preaching or charismatic leadership uh, or making promises that sounded to the people who were listening to them like, yeah, this ought to work or suggesting that they had secret knowledge, and if people followed them, then they would also get this type of secret knowledge. This is eventually what gets you in Gnosticism. Um, so Jesus, unique is that problematic term, but Jesus is his own guy. He's distinct, but he also fits within his own cultural context. Thanks very much for that. Oh, uh, by the way, uh, you know, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, it, it's sort of like saying, um, you know, coming into Denver in a Chevy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus wasn't the only one. And whether we have a triumphal entry with, you know, tons of people out there, you know, it really depends upon the gospel that you read. There's no triumphal entry in the gospel of Luke, and the only people healing him are his own followers. So you can read carefully. The gospels are going to tell us different stories. Well, and and I know, especially folks that were born in, inside a religious tradition and raised in it, it's it's very difficult to separate ourselves from a lot of the presumptions that we've uh, been taught, either deliberately or perhaps accidentally, and, and we carry into our interpretations. Well, uh, right, but then, so this is what I tell my students, which does annoy them. Just say, how do you know that? Go back and find me where it says something, something. Um, and if you can't find it, then at least acknowledge that you're making a faith statement based on personal commitment rather than making an historical observation. Now, the two need not be mutually exclusive, but sometimes they might be. Uh, Jacob, did you have any questions before we move forward? I do, actually. So All right. I 
my mind right now is on the epistle of Jude and a reference it makes uh, to the book of Enoch. How should we think about uh, the relationship of the New Testament to alternative, uh, well, not alternative, I suppose, in the context of the time, but alternative compared to what we think of as the Hebrew Bible today, uh, texts within the New Testament and how they're used? Well, if you were part of the uh, part of com Christian communions in Ethiopia, First Enoch would be in your canon. Um, so, uh, what we have here is the question of what was considered authoritative then, and what we consider to be authoritative now. Um, so, First Enoch, which is a composite text, four or five parts were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The most interesting were not too bad. Um, uh, where we have you know wars in heaven and battles over the body of Moses and all sorts of cool things tell us that these people who are writing the New Testament are not living in some sort of textual back, uh, backwater or vacuum, um, that they have different versions of what eventually becomes the Old Testament or the Tanakh, uh, and they've got other stuff that they're reading as well. I mean, the book of Acts quotes, uh, quotes, quotes Greek playwrights. Paul knows Greek playwrights to some extent. Um, so if you have a canonical text that quotes a non-canonical text, what then is the value of that non-canonical text? Well, it might actually prove to be somewhat instructive. Um, similarly, the Psalms borrow from Canaanite hymns. They just replace Baal and throw in, you know, the Tetragrammaton, the Yudhe Vothe. Um, people do this all the time. People borrow, people read generally widely. It tends to be good for us. Um, I think it's helpful to go read First Enoch, which not only gets cited in Jude, but it undergirds a bunch of stuff if you read the rest of the New Testament. Um, uh, there's, there are books out on, uh, Enoch angels in the gospel of Matthew, for example. Wonderful. Thanks. So, uh, I, I have a question about Paul and I know for, I've seen a lot of comments from folks finding it a little mind boggling that Paul went from, uh, a huge persecutor perhaps of Christians to a Christian leader and in that transition, are we should we think of him as as being a Jewish leader still, or is that sort of a, a problematic view of him? Okay, so I have to rephrase. Paul is not a Christian. Paul doesn't know the word. Paul never uses the word. Uh, Paul is a Pharisee who never ceases to be a Pharisee. It's not like he gives up his Pharisaic identity. Uh, he it, he probably thinks, and these are the words of my friend Paula Fredrickson of himself. Now that he's found Jesus is a better Pharisee. Um, he certainly doesn't go from being a Jew to being something else. He's just a Jew who's moved from sort of one way of being Jewish to another way of being Jewish. He's a Jew who believes the Messiah has come. So does he flip-flop on the persecutor to promoter thing? Yes, of course. Um, what goes missing here is why would he be persecuting the followers of Jesus, all of whom he's, he has no claim on Gentiles, by the way. So anybody he's, he's uh, creating difficulties for has to be a fellow Jew. And he's doing it in the diaspora. He's doing it outside the land of Israel. And you have to ask why. Why? Uh, because these uh, Jewish Jesus followers uh, out in the diaspora in Antioch and in Ephesus and in other places are telling Gentiles to stop worshiping their pagan gods, um, which is really dangerous. Uh, because if you tell locals to stop worshiping their gods, whether family gods or city gods or the state cult, um, you're putting your family and your city and your empire in danger because gods protect. Uh, you're suggesting a disloyalty. 
Uh, and people are going to say, well, who's proclaiming all this stuff? Well, it's coming out of the synagogue. It's coming out of those Jews. So, of course, Paul would be interested in stopping these missions. It puts his own community in danger. Boy, silence on your end there. Hi, can you hear me? I can. Oh, thank you. I was having a little bit of an issue. Um, no, so I, I, I really appreciate that, the point that there is, there's no, like, flip and, and he ceases to be... Um, you know, of the tradition that he came from. So it, you know, is Paul really just seeing Jesus as, uh, it's a little hard to reconcile, I think, as as a person like myself, who's, again, come with so many, um, so many different presumptions that, you know, you don't always realize our presumptions until they're challenged. Um, my next question is about at what point if if any clear point, did Christ, uh, Christianity and Judaism really separate into different religious traditions, and and was that a bitter separation? And, and how do we see that play out? Yeah, well, it depends upon where you are and who you are and when you are. Uh, at the beginning of the second century of the Common Era, uh, Ignatius, the Bishop of Antioch, seems to suggest that there's a pretty strong distinction. You know, don't listen to any of this stuff from Jews. Uh, but the very statement in a kind of mirror reading model does suggest that people are, in fact, um, you know, merging those, those two identities. Um, Danny Boyarin, Daniel Boyarin, um, who teaches Talmud at, at, at Berkeley, uh, uses a very helpful image of the color wheel. Like you want to go paint your kitchen. So you go to the paint store and they give you this color wheel um, and you can tell where orange is and you can tell where red is. But you can't really see where the transition is. You can only see the beginning point and the end point. Um, and trying to determine when, where, and and um, at what time Judaism and Christianity separate is kind of like looking at that color wheel. Um, you can see at the beginning it's all orange. All these Jesus followers, including Jesus, are Jews. Um, and in the 5th century, it, it's red, um, that, that there is a separation. But there has always been, kind of on the underground model, um, Jews who are also worshippers of Jesus who did not want to give up their Jewish identity. Um, today, we would call them Messianic Jews, um, of which Jews for Jesus is probably the, the most well-known. Uh, but there are many, many different groups of Messianic Jews. Um, the other problem is, even if you have somebody who's in a position of authority, like a bishop saying, oh, no, no, you can't be both. Or somebody like Jerome saying, you can't be both. People on the ground are going to say, you know, I'm, we, we are. Um, because it's very hard, unless you're in a political position, to control people's identity. Can, can I follow up on that quick? Sure. Please do. Uh, so was the destruction and desecration of the Second Temple in the year 70 a catalyst at all, or is that also a misconception? It's a really good question. Um, lots of biblical scholars think this is kind of like the watershed point or the breaking point, and I don't think so. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot of... Um, uh, you know, traumatized whatever following the destruction of the temple. Um, I think that the greater problem was after the Bar Kokhba revolt in 135, when Rome threw the Jews out of Jerusalem, uh, re basically christened it Aelia Capitolina, um, and and 
at that point, it was clear that the temple was not going to get rebuilt. Rome generally, when it destroyed temples, you have to know something about how Rome ran its colonies. Um, if, if the temple were a meeting place for people who were likely to rebel, then then you burn down the temple. But after the problem goes away, you rebuild in a sense of patronage and everybody says how lovely Rome is. So it's, it's good PR. Um, the followers of Jesus were able to say, and I think we have hints of this in the Gospels, uh, that the reason the temple got burned down was because Jerusalem rejected Jesus. Well, that's that's going to make some some waves. Uh, but I don't think that was the major breaking point. I really think it was 135. Um, it's so hard to tell because we don't have a good example of stuff that we can clearly date between, say, 70 and 90 or thereabouts. Gospels, maybe, but even there, we're not sure about the dates. One other thing to think about, um, the temple it is really important if you happen to live in Jerusalem and if you happen to be a priest. But if you live outside of Jerusalem, your religion, your religious identity is not temple-based. It's going to be local community-based. You would go to the temple for pilgrimage, uh, and it would be, and you would know that the priests were offering the sacrifice. But Jews had been without a temple before. They had the first one got burnt down in um, 587 BC. So they knew how to function without a temple. Any other questions before I, I carry on with my line? You're so quiet. Oh, my. Well, you know, everyone's paying attention. <laughs> um, to, um, to what extent do the New Testament epistles show a connection between Jewish, te a connection to Jewish teachings and values? Are we moving further away from Jewish traditions? Or are we still incorporating them as, as we move through the epistles? Well, you've got, sorry for my problematic wording and question. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, there are lots of different epistles, and they say different things. I mean, the epistle of James doesn't say the same thing as First Peter, for example. Um, if we look at Paul, um, who's the easiest one because we've got plenty of stuff by him, um, we begin to see some changes in terms of how stuff might get understood. Um, and we begin to move from from Jews as uh, a, an ethnic group with a particular culture and what we would call religion. Um, what does that mean when you move into the pagan world and pagans aren't Jews? So here's a major distinction between Jews and Christians um, that most Christians don't realize. In fact, I think a lot of Jews don't quite get this either. Um, Jews never settle down just to be an ism, you know, like Hinduism or Buddhism or what used to be called Mohammedanism, which is a religion, um, because Jews were never held together by a common theological claim, although they had them. Um, Jews are held together as, a, as an ethnos, as a people. Um, so it doesn't really matter what you believe. Uh, you're still a Jew. Uh, you know, if your parents are Jewish, it's, to be Jewish is today, following the Bar Kokhba revolt, actually. If your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's like being Kenyan or Mexican um, or an American citizen, for that matter. Uh, Christianity uh, begins as what we might call a faith tradition. So hence that faith idea. Um, you're not born a Christian. You are, to use the Johannine language, you're born from above uh, by water and spirit a Christian. So to be a Christian is not something that you get biologically or ethnically or geographically. Um, it's something to which you confess 
And here you can actually say yes or no, as opposed to Jews. Once you're in, you're in. If you're a Jew and you decide you want to become a Christian or you want to become a Buddhist, you're still a Jew. Um, you just happen to be identified with a different community. So Paul is taking what is initially a re, a, a, an ethnic concern, a geographically located concern, because an ethnos, a people has to have a geography, it's got to have a land, um, and a descent concern, and retooling that for a group of pagans. This makes a difference, for example, in terms of what does it mean to love your neighbors yourself? In Judaism, if you look at Leviticus 19.18, which says love your neighbors yourself, uh, it means fellow Jew, clearly, because Leviticus goes on to say in verse 34, same chapter, you have to love the stranger who dwells among you because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So you've got you've got neighbors and you've got strangers. Um, well, in the Pauline world, everybody's either a neighbor, which means a fellow believer, or a potential neighbor, which means a potential convert, or an infidel and an apostate. Uh, and the category of stranger, which Jesus does use in the parable and the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, drops out of the Christian vocabulary. That's a difference. Yeah, the, the word stranger sounds, uh, you know, a little different against the, the context you just described there. Stranger is somebody who is not you, who lives among you, and you just let that stranger alone. Equal rights, but you don't have to turn the stranger into you. But for the early church... Um, since Jesus was the savior of the world and everybody needed to follow him. For Jews, they're an ethnic group. So you didn't need to be Jewish in order to be in a right relationship with God, which is why Jews don't, to use the Christian term, evangelize. Yeah, and we could <laughs> we could talk a lot about evangelism. There, there are some who would say that, you know, our, our silly memes are an attempt to evangelize, which, you know, some might be. That's that's a legitimate, <laughs> legitimate. I know, but I'm looking at my screen, and I'm the only one who doesn't have a meme, and I'm feeling like really alienated, and and like I I need if somebody wants to design me one, that would be great. Well, I, I will not pay you, but I'll give you credit. I think you uh, very wisely pointed out life of Brian. People saying he he is the Messiah. We we, we <laughs> that, <laughs> that that gets riffed and memed upon quite a bit. Uh, so I want to ask you about this next question, because this is something that I, I, I have to be honest, I struggle to explain it so much, I usually try to avoid explaining it when it comes up. How, are, how can we understand Deuteropaul? Uh, <laughs> for myself, when I was in seminary, uh, I found it very difficult not to sort of see Deuteropaul as a fraud. Yeah. And, Professors tried very hard to explain to me that what that wasn't quite the case. So, to what extent? How do we understand this this experience of Deuteropaul, and how is that is that still you know relating to to a Jewish community at this point? I think it's moving away. So, when you talk about Deuteropaul, we're talking about letters that are written in Paul's name that scholars on the liberal side don't think Paul wrote. Um, you know, if if you're very conservative, Paul wrote anything that says it's by Paul, so then, then you have no problem. Uh, you know, whether you put Second Thessalonians into this group, I think that's Paul, whether you put in Colossians and Ephesians, uh, which I don't think are Paul, First and Second Timothy and Titus, which I'm pretty sure are not Paul. Uh, because people write in other people's name, and people have been doing that forever, which is how we get books like, oh, I don't know, First Enoch, which Enoch I'm pretty sure didn't write. Um, or the Testament of Adam, which seems even less likely that Adam wrote. So one person's forger is another person's pseudepigraphical author. 
people do this all the time. Um, it's honoring the person in whose name you are writing. Think about ghostwriters, for example. Um, it's continuing the tradition and taking it to a new level. Um, and sometimes it's co-opting the name for your own benefit. And it becomes the job of the reader to figure out where are we going to go with this. Um, very often, it's simply an academic debate that, at least in terms of the Christian faithful, um, ought not to make any difference. Why? Because it's in the canon of the New Testament. And if it's in the canon, it really doesn't matter who wrote it um, any more than it really matters whether, you know, Jesus' disciple Matthew, who, whether his real name was Matthew or Levi, um, wrote Matthew or not, or John, the brother of James, wrote the Gospel of John. If it's in the canon, we have to deal with it. You can say, oh, this isn't from Paul, so it's not as important, but that's subverting the idea of the canon. Yeah, and I think that there's, um, I sometimes call folks that consider themselves Christians but aren't necessarily connected to a community other than maybe a community like us, um, you know, sometimes are a little more comfortable playing it loose with the the canon, especially when they find out that there are books outside of the canon that they they weren't aware of. And I think that sometimes feels like a big secret that they've <laughs> discovered <laughs> where in fact yeah. I think the canon is is not exists because there there are other gospels. Yeah, of course there's stuff on the outside. But even even for those of us who grew up in the United States who went through the public school system, it's like saying if you didn't get assigned in the classroom, it doesn't exist. And that's kind of silly too. Um, or, oh, we can't read, you know, um, uh, the book Mouse in, in high school. Well, you can go to the library and get a copy. Um, the canons that we've got are the canons that we're stuck with because a bunch of people got together and said, yeah, this works and this doesn't work. And much of it is bottom up rather than top down. This was the stuff that was popular in the churches. Um, so why not add it in there? But then what we all do is we set up what scholars call a canon within a canon. We have our go-to books and we have our books that we don't yeah, you know, care very much about. Matthew, really important. Jude, yeah, not so much. Uh, really love Romans, First Thessalonians, eh, yeah. So that there are books on the outside can actually help us in terms of having a broader knowledge of how this history developed. But when it comes to church proclamation, it helps to have a, a bounded set of texts because otherwise it's just a free-for-all. Do you have a, a favorite or our favorite to teach about a gospel that was not part of the canon? I don't like any of them particularly. <laughs> um, I mean, well, you know, if you look at something like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Philip, um, they are typically sayings gospels. Jesus said something, something. And every once in a while, somebody says something in, in response. Or the Gospel of Judas, for that matter. It's a really weird text. Um, we talked I, about that one last week, actually. Ah, um, I tend to like narrative. Um, and sayings gospels tend to be less narrative. Thomas has no narrative whatsoever. Um, I like Because I like characterization and I like action. Um, I find most of these non-canonical gospels to be kind of flesh denying and world denying. And I kind of like things like, you know, flesh and sex and stuff like that. Um, and the canonical gospels get me more of that, you know, like eating, eating is good. Um, so I actually don't like teaching them very much. And the sad thing is that for all my years at Duke, when they plowed a lot of Coptic into me, you know, most of it's gone so that when I pick up Thomas, I have to, have to go to my dictionary. <laughs> I don't remember what this word is. Um, and my Syriac is pretty much all gone as well. So I'm sticking with the Greek stuff. That sounds, I can understand that. That <laughs> sounds uh, uh, 
like a lot to juggle all those languages. Uh, I just want to know, uh, want to let our other folks on stage know here that I'm coming to the end of my line of questioning. So um, get get together yours as we're coming up on our time here. Um, but I want to ask you about clobber passages. And to start off, how should we approach parts of the Bible that seem highly critical of Judaism, or at least the Judaism of the time that is being described in the book? Uh, we know a lot of people can take these to some dark places, but sometimes we look, I know a lot of folks on our sub, myself included, aren't really sure what to make of these these texts. Yeah, well, the very idea that you find them problematic is already a good start because so many people don't. Um, it's like people don't find text enjoining slavery to be a problem or text making women second-class citizens, let alone the clobber passages for the queer community. Um, so I'm delighted to know that you find these discomforting. Um, there's no easy solution here. Um, if Jesus is hauling off on a group of Jews, then it's Jews arguing with Jews. That's nothing new. Uh, but when Jesus' words get repackaged into the Gospels, they get repackaged into a canon that's that's designed for the Gentile church, then the words become harmful uh, because it's no longer internal critique. It's like, you know, don't be like the bad Jews, be like the good Christians. That's one of those separation problems that occurs. And that can um, play out. We, we, we can see that play out sometimes and that, that dichotomy. Yeah. Um, so what, what I try to do um, when I work with divinity students or when I before I retired from Vanderbilt, when I worked with my own divinity students, um, is I would bring my kids to class. And when they got older, I would borrow other people's children um, and I would put them in front of my students and say, you're talking about Jews or you're talking about Pharisees or you're talking about Jesus cultural context. Well, that is an historically bounded time period. But on the other hand, there were still Jews. So that when you're preaching or teaching, I want you to picture these kids, and I put my, my daughter or my son up in front, and I want to picture these kids sitting in the front pew, and don't say anything that will hurt these children, and don't say anything that will cause a member of your congregation to hurt these children, because if you do, you are deforming the gospel and you will go to hell. Now, that is theatrical and it's manipulative, but it's also remarkably effective. You know, picture who might be out there, and if you wouldn't say it in front of my kids, then don't say it at all. Um, the uh, the Orthodox rabbi um, Irving Yitz Greenberg says, don't say anything that you would not say in the presence of burning children, which is pretty heavy duty. But boy, is that a good guide. Um, I, I think it would be helpful um, if Christians would admit that parts of the New Testament canon are really, really problematic. And instead of trying to explain the problem away, and say, oh, it's not as bad as you think, you know, um, or it's, you know, John is a Jew writing to other Jews. How would we know? We don't know who John is and we don't know who his audience is. Um, instead of trying to explain the problem of way, deal with it and say this is a problem in the same way that, for example, um, and this is just recently this week, uh, members of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America just produced a 50-odd page, doc page document about dealing with Luther's anti-Judaism and dealing with the anti-Judaism in the text. Acknowledge it and deal with it, rather than just say, oh, nobody really cares, or we don't really think it means, you know, like Mrs. Goldberg down the street. Deal with it. For those who might be unaware, Martin Luther towards the end of his life especially, but I'm sure that wasn't where it started, wrote entire books that were just anti-Semitic tracts more than anything else. Oh, he started well. Um, that, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew is not a bad document. His, he thought 
the, the reason Jews weren't becoming Christians is because the Catholic Church was not teaching them properly. So, but if they had good Protestantism, which is not a term you know Luther would use, um, if if they had this this kind of good uh, reform model of how truly to understand the new, then of course they would all convert. The problem is they didn't, and that kind of sort of soured Luther on the Jews. But he started well. <laughs> Nothing like following up your your ecumenical or interfaith endeavor by then cursing those who you couldn't come to an agreement. <laughs> yeah, doesn't so really much, make so you seem like the best diplomat in the first place. Yeah, so much for blessing those who curse you, right? <laughs> well, and I, I didn't mention this, but I was my, one side of my family is Lutheran and the other side is Catholic, so I, <laughs> I, I'm a little more keen to laugh at Luther uh, than maybe other Protestants are. Um, so my last question here, and then I'm, I'm going to give our, our my co-hosts one last opportunity to ask some questions. We talked about clobber passages. I'm going to give out a definition of clobber passages, and you feel free to amend that definition. We see this at Dank Christian Memes, where we'll have a meme that talks about LGBTQIA plus folks, um, or sometimes Jewish people, and that we'll see a comment come through that is just a biblical citation for a text that is condemning a group of people and that they they basically use this piece of scripture as a proxy to condemn others. And then if you call them doubt on it, they'll say, well, I'm just, I'm just quoting the Bible. Um, there's a lot of really troubling clobber passages out there. Uh, and we've, we've referred to a few here. To what extent is it worthwhile to argue with clobber passages do we do our self a disservice if we remove those who are who are coming at, at folks with these passages, uh, or do we? Is it worthwhile to let it play out? What What do you think is is the better approach to to dealing with those who kind of sling clobber passages uh, without much thought? Yeah, well, the Bible teaches that all of us are in the image and likeness of God, which means I have to look at one of these slingers um, and and recognize. Uh, you know, through a meme or, or through direct contact, that this person is also in the image and likeness of God, um, and try to engage as best as possible. But the Bible doesn't say bang your head against the wall until you can convince somebody that he or she or they is a bigot. Um, so I do my best, and and when the when the negative emails keep coming, then I just block them because I you know I'm not a, I'm not a masochist. Um, on the clobber passages, the anti-Jewish stuff. Um, I think some of the stuff really is anti-Jewish, and, and I ask people today, didn't, didn't Jesus say you have to love everybody? You know, d d aren't we all in the image and likeness of God? Did not Paul say that the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, and that all Israel, by which Paul means all Jews, which is how he uses the term Israel, will be saved? So if Jews remain God's beloved, then what are you doing um, when you're making anti-Semitic comments? It's just not helpful. On the clobber passages for, uh, that are related to people with, with more broadly described queer identity, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, my friend James Martin, whom some of you may know, he is a Roman Catholic priest, a Jesuit, posted on his blog page, which is called Outreach, an article by a biblical scholar named Walter Brueggemann um, on clobber passages, which I thought sort of threw, the, to use the Christian term, the Old Testament under the bus. Um so I wrote to Jim Martin, who's a friend, saying, oh, come on, Jim. Um, and Jim said, well, AJ, why don't you just write an article on the clobber passages? I said, like, I have time. And he said, yeah, AJ, go do this. So if you go to the site called Outreach, um, you will find an article by me from last month on the clobber passages. Yes, I think they're worth talking about. Um, 
at least with the the clobber passages that are related to queer identity, at least some of them, we can problematize them to say we actually don't fully know what exactly they're describing. Um, and we can find other ways of reading these texts. So if somebody says to me, I, I think the Bible is against, for example, same-sex relations. The Bible doesn't understand, uh, you know, Bible understands G and Romans understands L. And after that, the Bible's a little, you know, kind of fuzzy on the different different labels or different identities. Um, uh, to say, here are other ways that we can read this material. Here are other ways that Jews have read Leviticus 18 and 20. Here are other ways that Christians have read Romans 1, for example, or 1 Corinthians 9. Um, here are problems trying to decide what these words mean, um, but not to stop there. Um, so I, I'm a member of an Orthodox synagogue. I'm not Orthodox in practice, but this is my community and I love it. Um, and I've had lots of arguments with my rabbi because Orthodox Judaism is not pleased with same-sex relations. Um, so I said to my rabbi, you know, beyond what the what Leviticus says and beyond what the Talmud says, which is where I have to base my arguments in Judaism, what do you want me to tell um, queer youth in the synagogue? Do you want me to say just, you know, oh, just pretend you're heterosexual? That's, that doesn't work. That's a betrayal of identity. Do you want me to say, well, just get married heterosexually and, and you'll kind of get with the program? Well, I don't want my kids married to this person because that's that's a betrayal of the spouse's identity. Um, reparation therapy, that's an abuse, according to the American Psychological Association. Live a celibate life, there's no room for that in Judaism. Um, celibacy kind of dropped out of the Talmud. Um, be, beyond that, it's it's um, uh, taking away somebody's fullness, because I think celibacy is a spiritual gift that not to which not everybody has the calling. What do you want me to do? What's your pastoral response here? And I think that's the better way of, of making the argument once you get done with what the texts say. Put a human face on it. Who's getting hurt? And then try your damnedest to stop the hurt. And I say that as an ally, because I think allies are important. I hadn't considered this, but to what extent, you know, we see in Christianity all the time a very hard divide and a lot of conflict around whether or not to be open and affirming to folks in the LGBTQIA community. Does that play out in Jewish communities as well, or is it just another issue of disagreement. Uh, is there a distinction to be drawn there? It depends upon the synagogue. Um, and we are all, with the exception of ultra-Orthodox, um, which is kind of like the Amish, we are all, um, we're kind of like Baptists, we're autonomous. Um, so, you know, some, some Jew out, out there can't tell us what to do because we can always say no. What are they going to do? They can't throw you out of an ethnic group. Um, so in the reform movement, which is reform, not reformed, reformed, our Presbyterians, um, in the reform movement, the conservative movement, reconstructionism, humanistic Judaism, uh, it's it's all totally open and affirming. There's no problem. Uh, ortho, modern orthodoxy, yeah, they're kind of moving toward a more affirming mode, but it's going to take a while. And ultra-orthodoxy, we're not going to get anywhere. Uh, my synagogue, my rabbi plays Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, so, it, And it's in a case where there are um, queer members of the congregation and we just don't talk about it. And as long as we don't talk about it, it has not been a problem. Um, if one of those members decides uh, they, just to use a general term, uh, they want to get married in the synagogue, now we're going to have a problem. But that hasn't happened yet. In some ways, I, I'm, I'm sure many Christian churches are, are in similar circumstances. I've been part of congregations who really wanted to uh, stay as neutral as possible as, as they saw it. Um, so, but on um, the other hand, on the other hand, for all that this is an Orthodox synagogue, my rabbi has come out 
publicly in terms of affirming um, whatever civil um, legal issues are on the table. That those civil that, that Jews don't have a say on whether you know whether you can marry somebody of you know two women can marry or two men can marry. Um, for that, he's all in favor of, of equal rights, and I, I think that's helpful. So what what do I do? My job my job is to keep the pressure up. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a lot of people in that uh, similar position on on a lot of issues. Um, we are coming up on our time here, and I I've been. I really appreciate you, to, uh, AJ. I don't want to push you too much on time, though. Um, folks on the stage, do you have any questions you want to throw out or anything you want to add to the conversation before we uh, say goodbye here? Yeah, and you can always talk to me again at some point, or you can email me. This has been great. Your questions have been fabulous, by the way. Yeah, so to switch gears a little bit, um, I just had a question about doing like academic research. So obviously you went to Duke, you know, go blue devils. Um, and you did a uh, doctoral degree there and you're now in academia as a professor. And I was wondering if you could just for any of us who are interested in doing academic work, um, whether it be as a full-time job or just as part of our life, if you could speak a little bit to your experience of that, um, and things you think we should know as we consider that. Oi. So if you were my child and you wanted to be an academic, um, I would ask you to think long and hard about, is this exactly what you want? Because unless your heart is fully committed to it, it it would be miserable for you. Um, It is not easy. Uh, Going through the whole tenure review is difficult. Getting a job is difficult. Getting published is difficult. And then you're consistently... Uh, being judged, whether it's by superiors or external people or by your own students. Um, so it, you have to be, to, to be fairly thick-skinned to do this thing. Um, but if you can survive the, the ongoing being kind of un, un, under the microscope, at least for me, the rewards have been extraordinary because I'm doing what I wanted to do. I'm doing what I love. Um, I, I love doing the research. I, I mean, my, my happy place is the library, um, as long as they let you bring coffee in. Um, I, it, my happy place is the classroom where I can sit around a table and talk with students about a gospel, and they ask me questions that I had never thought about before. It's like, oh, that's great. I've been reading this text for you know over 60 years, and now, wow, I haven't thought about that. God, that's so exciting. Um, or to help clergy uh, better phrase a sermon so that the congregation actually sits up and, and takes notice. And so I never thought about that before. But, you know, you're right. That's something I should be thinking about. Uh, but unless you're totally committed, uh, go find another job. Um, I have on occasion said to Ph.D. students, I really think dentistry is a good calling for you. You know, you can help people. You get called doctor. <laughs> you really don't belong in the classroom. Um and that's certainly hard for people to hear, but uh, if you think you can just skate through, you can't. Thank you. I wish I could, I wish I could be more optimistic about this. No, I think it's I think it's good because one thing. So I my primary um, interest is ministry, but I do also mm-hmm. I'm a former teacher and I have an interest in continuing to engage academically. Um, and so I thought, oh, maybe maybe a PhD or a THD here at Duke. But in talking to some of my fellow students um, who are in those programs learning some of those um, challenges has been eye-opening. So thank you for sharing your experience as well. 
Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I loved my time at Duke. I absolutely loved my time at Duke. Uh, but there was always the question of who the hell is going to hire me? You know, I'm a Jew with a PhD in New Testament. So that when I got my first job was at Swarthmore College in, in Pennsylvania. I was there for nine years before Vanderbilt bought me. Um, the, the the person running the search at Swarthmore called up my dissertation advisor and said, you know, just how Jewish is she? Which is an illegal question. Um, uh, I couldn't get uh, published under the name Levine, let alone under Amy Jill. So the reason I'm AJ is because when I was at Duke, um, I found that I wasn't getting the mail that my male colleagues were getting. So one of my faculty members said, go buy your initials and see what happens. And like the gates opened up. So, it, you know, the academy is not objective and the academy is not fair and the academy does terrible things. But it also does some good things and you have to figure out how to balance it out. I kept thinking to myself, if this doesn't work, I'll go to law school. It seemed to have worked. That's quite a backup plan, uh, but I appreciate you being frank about academia. I feel like uh, a lot of us have to figure out the sort of stuff you're describing uh, on our own and at our own expense. Mm-hmm. And remember, too, that in the classroom, you are expected not only to be competent in your field, you're also expected to be, what, entertaining and on call for your students and sympathetic to whatever concerns they might bring in, which I think one should be. But it asks a, the academy asks a lot. I can certainly agree with that. Um, anyone else have some questions? Going once, going twice. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here, AJ. Um, you are you are the first uh, scholar, I would say, to to be on our little show, um, and it's been really great to to benefit from from your wisdom. Um, as as we're leaving, is there is there anything uh, you want us to know about you? Is there maybe a spot we should find you online? I did find the article you wrote about clobber passages, and that is in our comment section. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, but is there anything else you want to let us know before we uh, close out our, our podcast here? No, I'm just delighted to be able to talk with you. Now I sort of understand this platform. I think all your your memes or icons or whatever these things, I think they're absolutely adorable. Um uh, and I'm just delighted that this worked. Hooray. So thank you very much for inviting me um, and go invite more academics because it's about time uh, we start talking to folks uh, who are curious about this. And I'm just very pleased people are curious. Thank you so much. Uh, and again, this has been our guest, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, AJ, uh, and she is the Ranley, uh, Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace. Uh, just rolls right off the tongue, doesn't uh, the new name. And you know what? You all can come study with me because I teach online in June. So you really want to find me, come study with me. Wow, nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing that that tidbit with us. This has been the Dank Christian Memes Podcast. Our music is provided by Olive Tiger. Our recording sessions are Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our Dank Christian Memes is a place for all kinds of Christians and all kinds of non-Christians to enjoy silly memes together, as well as this podcast. If you would like to connect with our community further, there's a link to our Discord in the comments section. Thank you very much uh, for listening, and until next time, may the memes bless you and keep you.